that hymn that we have sung, written by Henry Alford, who was a British New Testament scholar, evangelical New Testament scholar in the 19th century, is about the text that we are now going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. We will continue Zechariah, Lord willing, after the first of the year as we pick up chapters 9 through 14. This Sunday, if one follows a church calendar, is called by people Advent Sunday, and it is a Sunday that is given over to the theme of the return of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, next week we will continue on with, with the uh, first coming of Christ and, and the coming of Christ in His incarnation and His birth. But as we think upon the return of Christ this Lord's Day, because I often do that on this day as other churches are doing similarly throughout the world, I've decided to think upon with you the return of Christ by looking at the parable of the weeds. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24, but first let's go before the Lord our God in prayer. O Lord, we are so thankful for the Bible. We are thankful that it is God's own Word, that it is in its original autographs inerrant in the whole and in the part, and that we in translation within our laps have the very Word of God. We ask, Heavenly Father, that the Holy Spirit will be at work as the Word of God is read and proclaimed. Give to us both the doctrine of the gospel and the inward blessing of the presence of the Holy Spirit to convict and convert and to sanctify and to show us, each of us, our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we turn now to this wonderful passage and pray that it will be applied to each heart as the Holy Spirit omnisciently knows those applications are needed. And we ask and pray that some lost souls would come to know Jesus on this day and the people of God built up in the most holy faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, and we begin reading at verse 24. This is the Word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Then follows the parables of the mustard seed and leaven, and Jesus saying that his teaching in parables is the fulfillment of prophecy. 
And then we take it up again in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear the word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the parable that we have just read and the explanation of the Lord Jesus is the parable of the wheat and of the tares. It is peculiar to Matthew, and it is closely associated with the prior parable, the parable of the sower. As a matter of fact, I think in some ways it is that parable, but it is that parable with more specificity, bringing the ultimate conclusions to bear upon those who will receive the good word, the seed that has been sown, and those who do not. Parables tell us of various ways that people respond to the gospel. And the thing that I want to underscore right in the beginning is that no one can be neutral before the word of God, and certainly no one can be neutral before a parable of Jesus Christ. The parable is intended to reach the heart, and in some cases even to harden further a hardened sinner who will not repent. You cannot be neutral. It will affect you one way or the other. And this parable also is even more about the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age and the judgment that is to come and themes that we need to hear and the church needs to preach but are rarely preached and even sometimes scoffed, even in the church today. So we first come to the parable, which begins there in verse 24 of Matthew 13. And we find that there's a farmer, and the farmer was sowing seed, and that seed was good seed. The seed was good seed. And there will be a focus on bad seeds sown by the enemy as we read on in the parable. But for now, good seed takes root, it grows, it sprouts wheat, and it is sown, we read in verse 27, by the landowner. It is his field. He owns the field. And while they slept, the farmer's enemies sowed weeds among the wheat. This undoubtedly would have been darnel, darnel weed, like rye grass. It resembles wheat in its early stages, looks almost like wheat, and it's almost impossible to, to distinguish from real wheat. It is sometimes called wheat's evil twin. In my reading, there is uh, an interesting truth about this, that it also is very poisonous, though the text does not make anything of that. But 
In our part of the world, wild oats growing with the wheat evidently would be something very similar. The enemy's goal is to ruin his competitor's crop. His enemy wants to destroy him, destroy his profitability. One writer told of how in Canada a spiteful farmer rode through the field and scattered a weed that was called daisy in his neighbor's field that caused trouble for years and years for the farmer. And something similar, of course, is what is intended here. Later, it becomes distinguishable, however, intertwined with the wheat. Now, note again, the enemy of the farmer is the one who sowed the bad seed. So those who are his workers say to him, do you want us to go and gather them up? And the farmer says, no, the plant roots are so intertwined that if you pull up the, 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 the plant, you're going to pull up the wheat. It would uproot the wheat and so allow them both to grow until the time of harvest comes. And when the harvest comes, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them up in bundles and burn them up. And only then will the darnel, the tares, the weeds be clearly and completely distinguishable from the wheat. Then we shall gather the wheat into the barn. Now, this is a profound parable. Unbelievers do not have the ability to understand spiritual things. The scripture tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. He cannot receive them. They are foolishness to him. Parables further darken the darkness of those who heard unless grace intervened. Unless God intended to take by his grace the truth of that parable to the heart and save the sinner hearing it. For believers, parables always bear fruit. For the willfully blinded, the darkness simply becomes darker. And so as we go to Jesus' explanation of this parable, I want you to please remember what I said earlier and that is that no one can remain neutral before this parable. It's a parable that is going to point us to the day, the ultimate day of judgment, in which the wheat and the tares will be clearly distinguishable. So we go to Jesus' explanation, which is found in verses 36 to 43. They want to know, the disciples want to know, the explanation of the parable of the weeds of the field. And the emphasis, as Jesus unpacks the truth of it and explains it, does not seem to be so much on the wheat as on the tares. It is about judgment and how this relates to the kingdom. The question might have been, why would the wicked weeds be allowed to coexist with the wheat? Maybe the disciples were even thinking, since, since you have come and we know that, that you are the Messiah, what are we waiting for? <laughs> Why don't we just have the judgment now? Why don't we have what we know inevitably is going to come? Why do we have this waiting period in which, according to the parable, there is a growing together of the wheat and of the tares? And the explanation has several points. The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. 
which is a title of the Messiah. We'll say more about it later, but it emphasizes the deity of Christ and also the redemptive work of Christ. The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. It is Jesus himself. And he sows in his own field. Now, it's important that you note that in verse 38. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. And I say this because the parable is often misinterpreted so that people think that the field is the church, and that it's talking about the fact that within the church, visible, there are those who believe, those who don't believe, there are true believers and hypocrites. All that's true, but that's not the point here. The field is the world. The field here is not the church. The parable is not about the church with all of its mixed multitude that can sometimes happen in professing churches of Jesus Christ. The parable is about the church in the world, not the world in the church. And the weeds that are sown were sown by the sons of the evil one. The devil, he says, very specifically, the evil one is the one who has spread the darnel, the bad seed in God's world. And he says harvest is coming. That day of judgment is going to come upon us. It's going to be at the end of the age. He says in verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Down in verse 49, in which there is the parable of the net, the same point is made. So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. We read about the end of the age in many places in Matthew's gospel. When we come to the Olivet Discourse, the question that the disciples ask the Savior is, what is, what is the end of the age going to be like? When we come to the end of Matthew's gospel and we find the Lord Jesus Christ giving, commissioning his church in that final commission, he says, lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. And so Matthew's gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ in this parable and elsewhere and all through this book, actually, stresses that there will come an end. This age, this present evil age, is going to come to an end. There will be a day of judgment that is coming, a consummation that is coming. And he specifies that those who cause stumbling, actually, literally, it's, it's, it's a scandal, those who cause stumbling, those tares that hinder the wheat, and the lawless ones, do you remember back in chapter 7 that the Lord Jesus speaks of the lawless ones whom he never knew and says, depart from me? The lawless ones will be eternally punished. And that's the meaning of verses 42 and 43 when he says, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. And it's a simple thing for you to take your Bibles, perhaps this afternoon, and to look at the language that's used here and find it in other places in Matthew and other places in the Gospels, in which very, very clear there is nothing uncertain about it, that there will be the eternal punishment of the wicked. 
and there will be the eternal salvation of the people of God. There's only one way that you can be saved from your sins, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ who shed his blood to save sinners like you and me. But there is going to come at the end of the age this righteous judgment. The reapers are the angels who will gather up the tares to be burned in the fire, though angels do this. When we read Revelation 14, we see the Lord Jesus taking the lead. If, as I think, he is the Son of Man that is on the cloud, we read in Revelation 14, beginning at verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is truly ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. A section of scripture, by the way, that God used to bring me to himself when I was a boy. As I dwelt upon my sin and the judgment to come. So the Lord Jesus says, as he explains this parable, so shall it be. Not maybe, not perhaps. It might be like this. There might be some other option so shall it be to the end of the age. And so the Lord, in explaining this parable, says to his disciples and to us who hear his voice today, the day is coming in which those who are and those who are not the Lord's will be totally and completely evident. He who has ears, let him hear which I take to mean not those who have spiritual ears let him hear, but all of you have ears, you all are responsible for hearing. All of you have ears, even if your ears are stopped up, that does not eradicate your responsibility for hearing. All who hear the message are responsible for what you and I do with the message of the parable of the wheat and the tares for receiving it or for rejecting it. And so the Lord Jesus intends to use this parable in the hearts of those whom he will draw to himself by granting a sense of the weight of eternity. He's speaking to us this morning his word, and he wants our hearts to be filled with the truth, the recognition of a day of judgment coming, the weight of eternity. And I feel that I must pause and stress it because everything in our culture militates against our having a weight of eternity in our hearts. We're busy with computers and iPads and phones to the point of being ridiculous. 
We're busy with things that don't count. We're busy with things that don't matter. It is evidently a strategy of the evil one to distract the lost and even to distract believers from taking time to meditate, to think upon the truth, to actually feel within our souls eternal verities that should that should dominate how we think and how we live and what our choices in life should be. So that we live every day as Christians in light of eternity, in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I wondered as we read this explanation of the Lord Jesus, did you notice that the Lord Jesus has Old Testament allusions that he brings to the fore? Jesus is saying to his disciples in explaining this, let me go right to the heart of the matter. You know the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells you exactly what is going to happen. The prophets have prophesied. I'm simply the fulfillment. Now, the final prophet, who also is our priest and king, who is explaining what the prophets already have indicated in the Old Testament. And so reading verses 41 through 43 again, please note it. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the reapers are the angels who will gather up the tares to be burned in the fire as a possible reference to Zephaniah 1, verses 2 and 3. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. And in verse 42, they will throw them into the fiery furnace. Some students of this passage think, think that it actually is a reference to Daniel 3.6, the casting of the children into the fiery furnace. Only this time it will not be the children of God, it will be the children of the evil one. But more likely it is Malachi 4 verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. And in verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father is a clear reference to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, that speaks of the resurrection at the end of the age. And those we read there in Daniel, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then there are possibly other Old Testament verses, one of which I will mention in a moment, that are referenced by the Lord Jesus in this passage. God then has spoken by the prophets these things, and the parable of the weeds is about the certain judgment to come that they also prophesied. The field is left until the harvest day, and then the wheat and the tare shall be separated. And all of these things already are indicated in the Word of God. My parable really just summarizes what the prophets have preached. And the farmer who sows the good seed is the son of man. You see that in verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And this is another Old Testament reference to Daniel, the seventh chapter. And I pointed this out to you many times when we've seen Son of Man in a gospel. But it's that portion of Daniel chapter 7 that reads, beginning in verse 13, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And so the reference to the Son of Man stresses that he is deity, but also stresses his mediatorial reign, that there are many references in Matthew that correlate Son of Man with kingdom should be obvious from reading the book. And Jesus' preaching, it has often been observed, was oriented to the Son of Man figure who was given dominion and glory. When he tells us, essentially using the words of Daniel chapter 7 in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and preach the gospel. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ, you see, is the Christ of the Scriptures. He is the, the Christ preached by the prophets of the Old Testament. He is the predestined redeemer and savior of his people from eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who also is Son of Man. And Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the text tells us, owns the field. The field is the world, he says. He owns the field. He owns the world. And the whole world is accountable to him. I am accountable to him. You are accountable to him. Everyone is accountable to him. And he controls the entire history, the whole process. And in the end, it will happen just as he said. Now, you know, people of God, children, I am... I am completely committed to the authority of the Bible. Uh, I'm not here to preach myself. I'm preaching the Word of God. I'm preaching the text. I'm preaching Christ. This is what is going to happen. And he teaches this parable so that we may now learn what is going to happen. In some, it will deepen accountability. With others, in his grace hearts will be open to receive it. Now that's the parable. That's the awesome, weighty, eternal reality that he wants us to understand in his explanation of the parable. Now thirdly, let's apply it. Applying the parable of the wheat and tares. And first as we begin to apply the parable, we must understand that the church's visible mingled as it may be with believers and unbelievers is not the point of the parable. True, there are believers and non-believers in the church visible. God knows the heart, but the application is on the world. Verse 38, the field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. So as we apply this, we understand that the world is here for the sake of the kingdom of God. In other words, this parable helps us to understand why the world is still here. 
It's because God in history has a people. And as history unfolds, he is saving his people that will be a multitude that no man can number. He is saving them from their sins. And the world is here for the sake of the kingdom, which is the meaning of gather them out of his kingdom in verse 41. Because Christ came, the world is his redemptive kingdom, and he will remove anyone who does not belong. And all that will oppose him will be removed, according to the word of God. So until the last of God's elect are drawn to Christ by his spirit, the world will remain. And the despised and persecuted people of God that are ill thought of and persecuted and nobodies to the high and mighty of the world, loved by the Savior who bought them by his precious blood, the church, lowly despised, nothing in the eyes of the world is the reason that the world is still here. The church dominates world history. This is the purpose of world history. So that Schilder was simply right when he spoke of of the world as being the, the, there's the dome of God's judgment upheld by the column of the preaching of the world. And one day the last sermon will be preached and the dome will be removed and the judgment of God will collapse upon the world. That's why we're here. The time will come. But then also applying this text Christ will return and the wheat and the tares will be permanently separated. The wheat, the sons of the kingdom, will shine like the sun, but the tares, the lawbreakers, it says, will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The separation is not, is not yet. It is not now. And the Lord uses means in converting his own, including this parable. And so the right question to be asked of us and to for the minister to ask of you at this point is, where are you now in relation to Christ? The separation is not now. The separation comes at the end of the age. Where are you in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? I was very struck when I was thinking about this text and turned to the larger catechism with the language in the larger catechism, which, if you're new here, is one of the teaching tools of our church that's part of our confessional, our confession of faith before a watching world. And all of these points that I'm about to read are are footnoted with scripture that supports. And it's question 89 in the larger catechism. What shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? And the answer is, at the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences. Shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced upon them and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ his saints and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. But the part that I want you to remember here, to note, is that the wicked will be, and that would be all of us apart from Christ, the wicked will be condemned upon clear evidence 
and full conviction of their full conviction of their own consciences. Our culture is doing everything that it possibly can to do away with the whole concept of conscience. But conscience is the throne of judgment day in the soul of men. And the day is coming in which those who have suppressed the truth suppress their consciences. Rather than opened their consciences before the Lord and cried out, Lord, save me, because now I see that my conscience is in need of a Redeemer and a Savior. On that day, there will be a full recognition within the conscience of everyone, and that full recognition will not be for a moment. It will continue on and on throughout eternity. I don't know where some people are getting this idea that in hell, lost people just keep on doing what they've always done, and then in heaven, believers do their thing. No. In hell, there is the just judgment and wrath of God forever, because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And that's what the cross is all about. Only the infinitely holy God could come into this world, become man, and pay the penalty, the infinite debt that sinners like us owed. You know, sometimes people hear these things, and maybe somebody here this morning, you're angry with me. We're about to go in the Christmas season. Why are you preaching such a thing? There was a woman who came to hear um, Horatius Bonner, one of our Scottish Presbyterian fathers who preached the Word so faithfully. His ministry was so incredibly blessed and still is until this day. And uh, this woman who had gone to France and had grown up in this community came back to see one of her friends. And this is what we're told in the life of Bonner. This young woman had spent her infancy in Kelso. That's the place where Bonner ministered. And after living in France, had returned to visit a friend in June 1841. Well-educated, widely traveled, and thoroughly worldly. She may have known her friend had been converted under Bonner's ministry before she made this visit and seems to have been determined to remain untouched by her religion. Nonetheless, she consented to attend the evening service on the first Sunday after her arrival. Bonner was preaching on the misery of man in sin and the visitor's verdict on the sermon was too awful for her. She would not go back. But when individuals become angry under preaching, it can be a good sign. And it was so in this case. There was something hollow about her protests. Don't suppose that I care anything for that man's words. I'm determined not to mind him. Soon she met the man she intended to ignore, and a few weeks later she went back to the world no more. But after a little delay, straight forward to the cross, there to deposit all her sins and fears. And that's what I've been praying would happen as the words preached this morning, that you would leave the world. I'm talking about this world system that's got you all entangled and wrapped up. And go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the foot of the cross. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer and Savior. Now, believer, since all of these things are so, spoken by our Lord Jesus to us, 
we must be patient, and we can be patient, as we anticipate that day. For even though it's an awesome day to consider, we long for that day because we want our Savior to be glorified before men and angels, and we also long for the new heavens and the new earth. Wheat and tares grow together. The church is called now to evangelize, and at the time appointed by the Father, the Lord will come and He will will end this world. And I think it's with what strange authority the Lord Jesus Christ declares in this passage that He will be the judge of the world. This is the final eschatological judgment that ushers in the consummation of the kingdom of God, and Jesus said, I'm the one who will usher it in. Men could not read the hearts of other men, could never carry out the necessary separation. In the parable of the net, the nets must be full before the fish are sorted. So here in this parable also, the moment has not yet arrived, but the moment will arrive when false confessors, evil men, unbelievers, all who are entangled in the world will be separated from those saved by the sovereign grace of God. And I hope that in your heart, believer, that you are able to say, I want nothing of this world. Again, I'm talking about the world's way of thinking, the world's way of living, this world system. I want nothing of a world that crucified my Lord. And in bitter hatred, slew the Lord of glory. And so be patient. The long-expected day will come when Jesus will gather the wheat into his barn and the curse has been paid for us and fear of the future is gone for us as believers. But we are shamefully lacking in an awareness of eschatology and we should be living, every generation of Christians should be living in view of that day every day. So, people of God, we enter next Lord's Day into a Christmas season in which we think of God coming in the flesh, Jesus born in Bethlehem, in a hovel unworthy of a king, but a king he was, and a king he is, God in the flesh. And that once little baby, the eternal God, became flesh to save sinners. He also will be, the text says, the judge of the world. And the cosmic darkness of the world will be over. Do you hear? It will be over. Let us be then gripped by the majesty of truth once again. And let it dominate our hearts and our thinking. Pray for your pastors that that will be so in our hearts, and we will pray also that it will be so in yours. And when he separates wheat from tares, he will make no mistakes. There's not going to be an error. Oh, there's a tare that should have been a wheat. A wheat that should have been a tare. There will be no mistake. He knows who will be burned with unquenchable fire and who will shine with undiminished glory. Verse 30, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first 
and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I am looking forward to being gathered into his barn, not because of anything I have done, altogether because of what Jesus did for me. The separation, though, will be eternal, and God's people will be gathered to the place of security forever. People of God, cling tirelessly to the Word. Believe the promise of God. Live for that day. Long for that day. And I call upon you, all of you who have ears, I call upon you, lost friend, to hear the Word of God. May, may the ministers call for you now to hear the Word of God and to turn from sin and trust in Christ be taken to your heart by the Holy Spirit. May you enter into a Christmas season a new man, a new woman, a new child born from above. Amen and amen.